Welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I am joined today by the crew. In one corner, I have senior tech reporter Natasha Mascarenas. Natasha, how are you? I am doing lovely. San Francisco has been very kind to me recently, minus the rain. I just am loving living here. So reminder, I'm here. Everyone hang out with me. Uh, And speaking of hanging out with you, you're off to a conference today, I believe. Yes, yes. We'll talk about it more when we get to our AI section, but you may have seen San Francisco called Cerebral Valley, and there's actually a conference by that name hosted by Eric Newcomer and Volley. So I'll be around there. It'll be too late, so I can't even tell you to look for the person in the green jacket. But hey, I'm going to be wearing a green jacket. So I brought that up just because I'm going to be very curious to hear what you learned there, and I hope you bring that to the show. We also have with us senior TechCrunch reporter Marianne Azevedo, the reigning monarch of all things fintech. Yeah. Hi. How's it going, everyone? I'm just kind of shocked that it's already Thursday. Uh, This week has been a blur. It has gone by fast. I think the reason for that is just the sheer amount of stuff that's going on. So to give everyone a a preview, if you will, we're going to talk about a common app for founders. We're going to talk about StellarFi and the American credit system. We're going to riff on Lyft swapping out its CEO and why it's only worth 0.8x revenues. Um, Then Substack is raising money from its community. What's going on with accountability in crypto? And then finally... What happens if you ask ChatGPT to make fun of your own podcast? We'll get to all of that in a little (laughs) bit. But first, Natasha, I hear that the common app popular in American universities is also finding home in the startup world. Yes. So quick overview of the common app. It's kind of a app you can use when you're applying to college. You fill out one application and then can blast it to a number of different colleges and maybe slightly tweak it on the essay side to go with the specific university's requirements. And we're seeing that model kind of being applied to the startup fundraising world. And people who know my work know that I love nerding out about different ways we see networks questioned or challenged in tech. So the one I wrote about this week is called Seed Checks. It's launched by a VC and growth marketing entrepreneur that you may know. Julian Shapiro. And unlike the university-oriented Common App, this one takes one minute. Founders apply using a quick form, ask for a deck, memo, region. It has to be under $20 million in valuation. And then the application is blasted to 16 investors. It's pretty cool. I'm curious what both of you think, because I know there's been efforts in the Valley to do something like this before. Uh, it just feels more interesting given our weird downturn we're experiencing. I love the idea. I think it's so cool. And I'm wondering what took so long for something like this to come about, right? It's like, why do the same thing over and over again if you can do it once and reach more people at the same time? I think it's it's a great idea. If I were a founder, I would totally take advantage of something like this if I were you know, very early stage. And I'm sitting here also thinking, is there a way to replicate this model for pitches so that we <laughs> we are not bombarded in the way that we are as journalists. So anyway, that's me being selfish. My, my main crusade in life is to get Marianne to stop reading her email. And I've, <laughs> I've failed so far because the best way to avoid pitches is just to not read email. It's amazing. 99.9%. Well, I mean, honestly, think about it too. Like to bring it back to investors, like there are the investors who get their inboxes super filled with, I'm sure, a ton of out of their focus pitches. So much so that they're actually seeing that a tool like Seed Checks is actually giving them higher quality because it's not just let me send this cold email to like a bunch of different VCs. It's kind of like, I think it ups 
the ante a little bit because you know your you know the names. They're bigger names in, in in tech, especially tech Twitter, honestly. And because it's kind of this collective, I think that there's kind of I don't know. There there seems to be a, from what I've heard from the VCs who are on the list, a higher quality in pitches. So maybe there's something about that. No, I, I'm here for that. I mean. If this idea, this application process went to a series of, of VCs that we didn't know the names of, okay, it's a cool way for founders to reach VCs, VCs to get deal flow. Sure. But to me, it's slightly cooler because it does have investors that we know pretty well and we think are relatively on the the leading edge of things. Like, you know, Sarah Go, we had her on the show for a reason. You know, it wasn't a random choice. So that's cool. However, I want to make one historical parallel Please. about my alma mater, University of Chicago. Now, you Chicago, for the longest time, was a place and a haven for dweebs and outcasts, right? Like it was the place where fun goes to die. It's very cold. (laughs) And it was super intellectual and like off on its own tangent. We had a joke, you know, that's all well and good in practice, but how does it work in theory? That's East Chicago. And our app was called the Uncommon Application oh, when I when I applied. What a pain. Oh. What a pain. What an excellent way to find an interesting and, and distinct student body amongst the homogenization of American higher education. <laughs> However, since then, they moved to the Common App. Many more people have applied. The acceptance rate has plummeted, which I'm sure is what they wanted. And now UChicago kind of feels like another Ivy-ish school that's just there. So to me, I love this, but I, I do wonder a little bit about abstracting the relationship between founders and, and investors uh, to a more mechanized process. Mm. Of course, we see this at YC. We see this with sure. safes and other kind of standardized notes. But, you know, I fret gently. I don't think this should replace like, you know, actual networking and building relationships or anything like that. I think it's more of to supplement it as just one other way to reach investors. Now, I would agree with you. It certainly shouldn't like replace just genuine hardcore networking and relationship building. But I think it was Cindy, Capital X's Cindy noted that she, as an investor, she feels like she's getting higher quality pitches because she would be limited into what, how much she could write to check for. Whereas banding together with these other investors opens up the number, the opportunities for her as an investor, because then she's seeing pitches from companies that she might otherwise not have been able to invest in on her own. So I thought, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think the last part on this deal is very much what you're saying, the investor perspective of why it's not just, you know, okay, yes, it's easier for founders. There's kind of no love loss if it takes you one minute to fill it out. So I get why founders are doing this. Investors, on the other hand, um, we talked about, I mean, I talked about a little bit about solo GPs going through struggles in today's market. This is a way to kind of bring collective eyeballs, as Julian put it on the phone, towards a group of VCs versus each of them needing to always defend their bag individually, which to me, it kind of... It also is no cost for them. So I could totally see this being recreated on different groups. Like there's a lot on competition, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. we w- I'm sure we will see more of this if it works. Okay. But like if you have a bunch of solo GPs that each control their own fund, very cool. And then if you bring them together and you have more GPs and a larger aggregate pool of capital, isn't that just a venture capital firm? I feel like this is like a deconstructed apple pie. Like you're giving me like <laughs> apples and crust and ice cream. And I'm saying, or you could just smush them all together. Anyways. <laughs> Not as fancy. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, every time you go to like a Michelin star restaurant, they're like, here's deconstructed asparagus. Yeah. And you're like, F- me. Why? <laughs> Anyways, uh, Marianne. I hate the American credit system. Anything to bring it down is in my in my wheelhouse. So I'm very curious about Stellar Fire, their capital raise, and their fast ARR growth. Yeah, yeah. Agreed with you 100%. That's that's why this particular round caught my attention. Stellar Fi is an Austin-based 
startup. It just raised $15 million in a Series A round. It was founded 2021 by Lamine Zarad, who actually founded another company called Joust that was acquired by Zen Business in 2020. So he has a track record of building a successful fintech company. This model is very interesting. Now, we've talked about the fact the credit system here in the US is, is antiquated, doesn't really make a lot of sense. So the concept of being able to boost your credit by paying your rent and bills on time is not necessarily a new one, but the way that this company is going about it is unique, and at least that I know of. So rather than trying to figure out a way to get your credit score to go higher by directly you know, paying your rent or bills on time, it's saying, look, we will pay your bills and rent on time for you. We'll manage all that bill payment. You pay us back. When you pay us back, we report that to all four credit bureaus and your credit score will go up. So fascinating subscription model. They charge either five to $10 to manage and do all of this. They claim that members see an average increase of 26 points in their first month. They also revealed uh, revenue figures, which is very uncommon, said that they launched this product last summer, late June, closed out the year with over $2 million in ARR. They were expecting about $1 million, so doubled that, and uh, says they're continuing to grow. Accrue Capital led the round. I have so many thoughts on this because it is a very Marianne story and quality, of <laughs> course, but also the topic. Because I knew you wrote about Tomo Credit last year, and that was trying to maybe angle it differently because it wanted to go away with the credit score. This one, to me, it sounds like, I mean, maybe I'm just having Apple in the back of my head, but it sounds a little bit like buy now, pay later. But am I wrong? Is that going to annoy them that I think that? No, I can see where I can see where you would think that because you're basically paying someone back. And I asked them, I was like, well, what about, what about defaults? And they're like, no, we don't have, hmm. they claim they haven't had any defaults. They said they've had a lot of attempted fraud, which I found interesting that they, they have an algorithm that, that supposedly catches a lot of, but, but yeah, they're saying they're not, they're not really seeing defaults. So, but I see your point. That's an interesting analogy. Yeah, I see the opportunity for fraud. If they're not having that impact them yet, I hope that holds up as they continue to scale. But if I understand this correctly, Marianne, they've essentially built a, a credit layer in between a consumer and their regular payments to services and rent. So essentially, they have hacked the system by creating the system the way it should have been originally, which is you get points for paying your stuff on time. Exactly. And it impacts your credit score versus one thing about American credit systems that if you reduce your number of like credits, like credit cards and other kind of like loans, your score can go down even though you have less debt. And so it's always been a little bit stupid. I love this hack of the system. And I'm also just amazed that at, you know, five to 10 bucks a month, they've already hit 2 million ARR shows how much demand there is for this product. Like that's crazy. Yeah. It is. I was really fascinated, honestly, by this, by everything the company's doing right now. And interestingly, what their next step is, is to build a marketplace to pair up these members with lenders. So now it's a whole other ball game, And I, I don't really have as many thoughts about that. I think I, I can see that natural progression. But you know, that's different. I, for now, I was just really impressed with this particular model around credit. If you think about Credit Karma and their ability to help people understand their credit and then apply for various things and get a lot of referral income for that. I wonder if Stellar Fi is going to make a lot of money off of a similar sort of yeah, offerings. I think that's their goal. I'm going to compress my deal of the week because there's a lot to get to today. It's a chunky show. We're busy and full and tired and excited. <laughs> Isn't that a, a Taylor Swift song about being 22? Like we're, 
hungry, angry, tired, and lonely at the same at time the same or something. Time? I'm, yeah, I'm not going to say. I, I'm butchering that. I take it back. Sorry, I've been on a big Taylor Swift kick lately. <laughs> Anyways, Lyft, it's kind of like Uber, but it won't bring you food. Oh, no. And <laughs> what? Yeah, you're right. I mean... That's the that's, that's okay. Anyways, uh, Lyft is an American ride-sharing company. Had a pretty good acceleration out of the pandemic. Its co-founders, CEO Logan Green and President John Zimmer, are going to step down from those roles, and a former Amazon exec is going to be stepping into the CEO slot. And this kind of caused us to sit back and go, "How's Lyft been doing?" And the answer is medium, I think medium-ish. The business has recovered from pandemic lows. Its share price, though, is a fraction of its IPO price. The company raised a couple of billion, priced its shares at 72. And Natasha, now it's down to like 10. And here's the thing. I know you're not big on like revenue multiples and kind of my nerdy financial shit, but like if you're worth less than 1x your trailing revenue, you're being valued like a grocery store. So I'm kind of amazed at how this company's saga has ended up with everyone realizing later on that it's not worth that much. My big question on that note is like, how long do you need to see your share price fall or be struggling for the two CEOs to be taking a step back? Like, and obviously we, you know, I don't think they said we are stepping back because of this, but you can put two and two together there. But yeah, I don't know. Is there like a period of grace on that front? Because to me, some of these executive step downs we've seen over the past two years, some of them felt more explained than others. And I'm still always trying to make better sense of it. I don't I don't know how Green and Zimmer talked about it. You know, the, the thing here that's kind of interesting is and uh, Rebecca wrote the story for us on TechCrunch, and she was kind of talking at the end about how the company's shares are set up and how mm-hmm. kind of control is set up. So they're stepping down from like operational control, but I'm not entirely sure how much actual control of the company they're giving up. I think it sounds like they've hired someone who investors might like more to try to find some more growth in the business where they can kind of sit back and continue to invest and make a lot of money, which is a little bit irksome. But it's also their business. You know, they got these shares set up the way they did and investors love them. I'm just kind of in awe because the company raised $4.9 billion while private, according to PitchBook, and is now worth three point five. And also it raised a few more wow. billion when it went public. So it's managed to turn lots of money into less money over a long period of time. And also drive me around San Francisco quite a lot. <laughs> it reminds me a little, a little bit of authentic Marianne in which everyone had these expectations for valuations. And then it turns out that everyone was wrong by a factor of 10. Yeah. I find it interesting that the new uh, CEO was a former retail executive at Amazon that started there very, very early on. So I, I find that really interesting. <laughs> and also the terms of the the shares that you brought up, like they are still going to hold high voting shares that entitle them to 20 votes per share until they are both dead. I was like, oh, wow. I don't think I've ever like seen anything like this. And then if one of them passes away or becomes in- incapacitated, then the other co-founder will control those votes. So that that to me was kind of interesting. Plus, the new CEO is getting a lot of money and uh, bonuses and stuff, which I thought was interesting as well. Well, speaking of a lot of money, we saw a company raise or at least get some pledges to raise a good chunk. And Alex, it's one of your favorite companies in terms of covering because it touches the world of writing. Tell us what's happening. All right. Substack. Woo. It's a place originally what it would do was let you set up a email newsletter and it had an early focus on letting people charge for their email newsletters. I've mostly used it as a blog because all of its stuff also goes on the internet. I send out emails occasionally, but frankly, I don't think any of the three of us is happy with how much personal writing we're doing compared to how much writing we do at work. No. But it's slick, easy, fast, pretty effective. And it was, for a period of time, a venture capital darling. 
Back in 2021, it raised a $65 million Series B, pushing its valuation up to $650 million. And then it tried to raise more money last year and then was like, ah, not so much. So time has passed. The company has grown. And now it is doing an equity crowdfund, which is a sentence we don't say much on the show. Was looking to raise a couple million. Initially, we covered it when it raised two, but Marianne, last time I checked before the show, it was at $6.6 million on this uh, kind of wow. pledge drive for its crowdfund. Impressions on that number? I think this is actually really cool because I feel like they're not just doing this because, oh, they're trying to raise money. Apparently, it was back in 2021 that they also were trying to figure out a way to somehow incorporate the writers into being like part owners somehow of the company and it didn't work out. So I, I think they were just like, okay, this is a way we can do this without having to involve like external VCs or investors. So I actually think this is pretty cool. The fact that it was able to raise over three times what it was trying to also is interesting, especially in such a short amount of time. I think it speaks to its quality as a product, because if its users are that eager and willing to back it, to me, that says something. I think the issue is like, you know, on one end, yes, they were thinking of it before, but they also did not raise a round that was reportedly being tried to raise somewhat recently. And so I do think the capital is somewhat out of necessity, if I can say that. On the point, though, of it getting so much demand and capital, the hard part is like impact and it being interesting and making sense in terms of writers participating in ownership doesn't completely track to like if it's a good investment. And I feel like that's really what the reaction was when I even tweeted out the story, which is Substack hasn't yet disclosed its financials and it will be before the money actually is taken from investors, both unaccredited and accredited. But yeah, I don't know, Alex, I know you thought about price too, but I feel like that's the hard part is like balancing the financial realities of Substack with the fact that it's like this really interesting, clearly beloved product that community wants to participate in. So on the community participation point, I think what matters here is the people that are putting money, or at least if it's the writers that we think are kind of powering this crowdfunding campaign, they're people who make money from Substack. So they're taking some of their income from it and putting it back into the business. I dig that. I love a community effort. Makes a lot of sense to me. I don't think, though, the model will apply to a lot of companies because most companies' customers don't make money from using their platform, mm -hmm. right? So this is kind of a special situation. It's cool. But Natasha, I think you're dead on in which we, we shouldn't conflate hey, this is a cool idea to, hey, the price that the money's going in at makes sense compared to the company's current financial realities. So the question that we'll have to answer when we do get the full run of their numbers, and by the way, cannot wait for those numbers. <laughs> I'm so excited for you. I'm like fizzing with excitement about that. <laughs> ah! It seems really expensive. So I did a little math magic uh, the, other, the other week before this came out, but after they announced that they had 2 million paid subscriptions and 2 million paid subs at an average monthly cost of seven bucks would work out to gross transaction volume of like 168 million, 10%, 16.8 million. You can tune that number up, but the company's run rate probably doesn't support $650 million as their valuation. And that's the price being offered. So essentially what they're doing is they're opening their Series B up to their community. Okay. If you want to put a thousand bucks into Substack because you believe in it and you use it and you don't really need the money back, cool. But if it's an actual real investment, there should be price discovery, right? And that's what we're not seeing here. But if they raise more venture money, there will be price discovery. And now they're just saying this old price is the price. Here you are. And so it, it doesn't quite sit well with me. I have a question, though. I mean, are maybe I misunderstood, but aren't the people who have pledged these funds, don't they have the option still to not 
commit? Yes. Aren't they going to get some numbers though before they commit or am I am I confused? No, you're right. You're right. Within one to two weeks, I think of these initial pledges, Substack is required to disclose its financials. Like I don't know what they're going to disclose. I'm sure it's going to answer this critique because of the law and because mm-hmm. else what you just said, like this is equity crowdfunding's biggest challenge, but opportunity is like, can it successfully get a cohort of people investing in companies, but also do so in an education way, but also do so in a way that like helps companies raise money rapidly. Like, I don't know. I feel like Substack seems like one of the biggest names I've seen take this route, which is hard not to be excited about, honestly. Mm-hmm. I was shocked when I saw it in a good way. I thought yeah. it was super cool. My only beef is price. I mean, another company that's doing this, Amanda from TC showed me this Zencaster, mm. which is a, a podcasting service that I, if I recall the earlier days of the show, we used to record when I was remote so we could actually have the audio kind of auto-synced up anyways. They're also doing an equity crowdfund and they've only raised 550, 600,000 in that. And they have their financials public on their page and they don't have a lot of cash and they have a burn rate compared to their cash that's a little bit worrisome. And so I'm concerned that they're raising a couple of months worth of burn from the community that won't actually make their business super viable. And so I think that these equity crowd funds, even though they're capped at, I think, 5 million per 12 months, I think they need to have a material impact on burn extension mm, to be mm-hmm. kind of reasonable. Because if your company's going to run out of money in a week and you raise $1,000 from your mom and you go out of business in two weeks, you're not going to have a happy mom. Yeah. I think that education is like a very helpful way to put it, honestly. Yeah. Well, we will write about this. Yes. I'm pretty sure we will all write about this from different (laughs) angles because we care a lot about it. And I'll just say one last thing to stir the pot before we move on, which is, you know, Andreessen Horowitz put a lot of money into Clubhouse and Substack and inflated their valuations to levels that I don't think match current reality. And then seem to have stopped doing that. And now we're seeing kind of what happens if you had the hottest backers and the hottest valuation, the hottest rounds a couple of years down the line. I wonder if we'll see more of this. I can't disagree Good point. with that mic drop, Alex Wilhelm. Um, and hey, if we are wrong and Andreessen did sneak money into Substack through a very mysterious extension round, like let us know. Everyone knows where you can find us. Yes. But let's move to our next section and I guess talk about accountability. So kind of fitting in our last conversation around education and making sure people don't get screwed over. What's the latest with SBF and why are we talking about him and accountability? Is it is it finally happening? Well, I mean, I think the accountability hammer has been whacking him in the forehead for a, a little while now. I mean, every time he uses the internet, it becomes international news. <laughs> I, I, I almost just said poor guy. And then I remembered, no, not really. <laughs> not poor guy. Do you guys see the list of like sites he wants to be able to use? I did. I was bummed that my Substack wasn't on there. I, w- I was bummed that TechCrunch didn't make it. He wants to read Insider, but not TechCrunch. I mean, Sam, come on, dude. Anyways, <laughs> SBF is back in the news. And this is a segue into a broader note on crypto regulation, kind of where things are. But Sam Bankman-Fried, former CEO and founder of FTX, uh, the exchange that went into bankruptcy and immolation, apparently, according to the US government, in a superseding indictment, tried to bribe Chinese officials with about $40 million to get a billion dollars unlocked. Now, a couple of things here. One, bribery legally dicey as a move. (laughs) Yeah. Bribing Chinese officials during the current geopolitical climate, double dicey. And then also, I I mean, holy shit, how much more is there to unpack here? I'm blown away by it. I was blown away as well. I mean, my God, like it's unbelievable what how much this guy has done or tried to do. Like he just seems to have thought that he's like above the, not just the law, but like everything or anything like he's just like consequences be damned i can do whatever i want i mean what what kind of fantasy world is this delusional man living in i don't know but like i really hope i really hope 
he does not get off easy because this is just ridiculous. I don't think he's in danger of getting off easy. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I think it's very different too. I know this isn't a comparison any of us have really made, but between him and Adam Newman, Adam Newman is back building and had so many questions as like a kind of high flying CEO that was ousted in many ways. And and I think at first, SBF could have gone so many ways and FTX's collapse could have gone so many ways and SBF may have had a return story. But I feel like with each update, SBF's return feels less and less likely, which I mean... Good. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be much of a return to yeah. form for him. I think he's going to be in jail. And th- there is a differentiation between legitimate fraud, which we've seen, for example, in the court proceedings in the Theranos case, and what we're seeing with the indictments with FTX, and then what you might call startup-y hijinks, which is more, I think, where we work lands. And I know if you're listening to this and you don't agree well, that's okay. We love you. We have to move on to the rest of this, though. So th- this was just kind of a, an appetizer wheel and a moosh-boosh of uh, crypto regulation. Ooh. So what else is going on? Well, on Monday, the uh, American government, the U.S. Commodities Futures and Trading Commission, slapped CZ from Binance with a bunch of words that are not very popular with CZ and the Binance crew. The filings there paint the picture of a company that lacks oversight and regulatory posture is too fair a phrase. It's probably more like a a wanton disregard for the law. And I think what we're seeing here with SBF's broader set of indictments, with Binance's trouble with the CFTC, with the Coinbase Wells notice, uh, with Kraken's fine around staking, is the American regulatory institutions have finally caught up to crypto a couple of years after they might have, but they have arrived and they're pissed. Does that sound fair? Yeah, it does. But here's, I'm going to pull you, Alex. I'm going to pull sort of like an analogy. This reminds me of having kids that you pretty much let run wild. Okay. Let them do whatever they want to do, tearing up shit in the house and just acting crazy. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh man, I should have been paying better attention to you. Oh, I, I shouldn't have let you do that. And then trying to, you know, go back in time and slap their wrists and say, no, that was wrong. Like, what What took so long? Where were the regulators in 2021? I mean, I think they were trying to figure out what the blockchain was in 2021. Tech does move faster than the government. The IRS, by the way, if you didn't know this, still uses abacuses and cuneiform tablets to record our tax information. I can't even continue the metaphor because it's so absurd. Like, not the metaphor, the reality of the government playing catch up and playing. But I'm kind of like, even in the wake of SVB's collapse, a lot of people said the government is now going to be paying attention to tech more and more. If the government is still trying to understand, like, that tech is not just kind of these, like, buzzy, insert what you think about Silicon Valley here ideas. I'm not surprised to see crypto get kind of so much laxness, but I am I am happy to see it obviously start to have an inflection point. Too many examples to count right now. Let me flip that upside down there. So one of the nice things about the American system is that you can run a little bit ahead of regulation and try some new stuff. Heck yeah. I'm not saying that excuses securities fraud if that's what we're talking about, but I do like that, you know, business and innovation, I hate that word can have a little bit of free room sure. at the the spear point of, of the economy. Uh, in this case, you know, I mean, my God, wasn't the ICO boom enough of a warning to the government that they should really like quintuple the staff that yeah. had working on this stuff to stamp out the fraud? So it feels a little bit late. In a macro sense, Coinbase is going to be arguing with the government for a while. That's the American crypto scene. The international scene with Binance and the remains of FTX and so forth seems to be increasingly centralized in hands of people that are not entirely trustworthy. 
is, is my vibe, if you will. And that's not good for crypto overall. Is there any India update that you've seen recently? Because I, I know that was a conversation in our show for a while on like, will they, won't they with India and its crypto scene. But I, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I haven't seen anything coming from that region in a while. They were going back and forth on banning crypto, not banning yeah. crypto, taxing crypto, not taxing crypto. Yeah, I haven't seen anything lately. Well, the good news is that apparently there is a India crypto bill that is going through the works right now. So, I mean, maybe there's some rules and regulation to come. Thank you for yet another news hook. <laughs> and, and that's what happens when you Google things during the show that we forgot to look up beforehand. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, equity. Equity. Speaking of this show and talking about this show from a really navel-gazing, high-level perspective, we have been having some fun with AI. And we're going to get to that in a second. But Natasha, I hear that there are some Luddites who are peevish about all things ChatGPT. Yes. So on Wednesday, more than 1,100 people signed an open letter asking for all AI labs to immediately pause for at least six months. And so the people who you expect not to have signed it did not sign it, which includes OpenAI and Anthropic, which spun out of OpenAI to create a kind of safer chatbot. And then the people who did sign it include Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak, and Tristan Harris, um, as well as a number of AI scientists and responsible AI governance experts. And so there is kind of like this loud signal being created. I kind of have an issue with open letters. I, I, I'm curious what both of you thought when you saw the ask, which was to ask all AI labs to immediately pause for at least six months, the training of AI systems more powerful than GPT-4, which actually could be written better, but not to be annoying. That could be definitely slimmed down a little bit. Anyways, thoughts? I don't know. My, <laughs> my first thought was like, what is their true motivation here? Like what, why, why are all these people signing this. Elon is definitely working on AI. Also, can we just, can we say that out loud? Okay. So, so look, that was exactly my thought. My <laughs> thought was Elon Musk needs six months to catch up. And so he's trying to get everyone else to freeze and, and flip it around. If Musk, let's say Elon owned all of open AI and it was his company and they were leading the market, you know that he will be on the other side of this, right? So of course, hypocritical economic bullshit aside, I'm not impressed by this letter. And frankly, I know you guys aren't big gamers, but one thing that's cool in the gaming world in the last couple of years is early access. So developers, especially smaller devs, will build a game to kind of done, but then they need to kind of like hone it, tune it, tweak it, improve it, make it more balanced. And so they'll open it early and it'll be an early access. You can buy it, you can play it, and you can talk to the developers. I'm doing this with a game called Farthest Frontier. It's a lot of fun. I feel like we're in the early access part of the generative AI boom. And yeah. one way to get this stuff figured out is to let people use it. And so we are, and we're learning. People are making mistakes. People are correcting things quickly. And to me, the pace of innovation is being held back politely by people who seem to be relatively responsible. And I'll give Sam Altman a point here. And so I don't think this is necessary. And it feels odd to see so much of tech rally behind doing less. It feels like it's really hard to extract a genuine fear for AI moving too fast and us needing to be more measured versus competition worry. And I think like Honestly, at the end of the day, like seeing the names that are on that list, like competition just does feel like the biggest elephant in the room. And so, yeah, not super impressed by that. I am impressed though by just, I mean, all of us and our experience so far of experiencing chat GPT, because I mean, I had my first no meeting day on Wednesday and I spent the day with the extra brain space talking to and prompting chat GPT. I know we're late a little bit, but I also think it's never too late to be excited about something cool. I mean, we're, how often are us to be excited about something on the show? All right. So what we did to show up the party fashionably tardy is we did some prompting and we have some fun things to share with you. We tried to do a single prompt with different Twitter 
handles across different services. But I think just in the honor of time, instead of reading out loud 7,000 words that we've pasted into our notes doc here, uh, why don't we each pick one of our prompted responses that we got for fun, for flavor, and to show off what things can do? Fair enough? Let's do it. I'm going to go first because I already have the talking baton. And I asked ChatGPT to please write a few sentences in the style of Alex Wilhelm, criticizing the Startup Focus podcast called Equity. So here's what ChatGPT came up with. Ahem. As a longtime listener of the Equity podcast, I have to say that lately, the show seems to be veering away from insightful analysis and towards service-level hot takes. While the hosts have a wealth of experience in the tech industry, there's a risk of falling into the trap of sensationalizing startup news at the expense of thoughtful commentary. I hope that the show returns to its roots of providing deep analysis and nuanced perspectives on the latest in the world of venture capital and startups. Now, I asked for a critical take. I'm offended. I didn't ask to be punched in the stomach. Brutal. (laughs) I mean, brutal. I will say I can get some vibes. Like, I think they literally just pulled critical one star to three star reviews from Apple Podcasts. So that's my two cents on where that generative nature is coming from. And I would love generative AI to ask me for some opinions once in a while. And I mean, I know I'm kind of asking for it to be a sentient being, which maybe I shouldn't be, but I just would love to be able to clap back and actually clarify and train it to have a better criticism. Even I can handle criticism. (laughs) We've, we've learned that Natasha reads the one-star reviews. Don't do that. I know. I need to stop. Marianne, what did you, uh, what did you pull from the great maw of generative AI? Well, I won't get into my fintech reporter query today, but I did ask it, how would I describe the concept of generative AI in a chatty but engaging three sentences? I was amused because I did this twice. And in both cases, it started out with, hey there, exclamation point, which kind of made me pause. And then another exclamation point later in the first graph, I don't know if we have time for me to read it, but I read it. Okay, here's one. Generative AI is like having an artificial intelligence buddy who can create new things based on what it's learned from past experiences. It's like having a friend who can tell you a story, but instead of being limited to what they already know, they can come up with something totally new and unique. Think of it like having a creative companion who's always up for making something new and exciting, exclamation point. I mean, medium. I can't disagree with that. Mine, uh, I actually, I don't think you asked for an example, but I did in mine. I said, how would uh, and mask underscore describe the concept of generative AI in a conversational humorous tone, but still engaging three sentences, please use a brief example. And they did everything from describe it as a little creative genie in a bottle to a robot Picasso. So there was definitely some creative <laughs> aspects uh, when you asked for it to be. So I feel like a lot for us to take away from our early experiences. And I'm working on a piece on how to be better at prompting too. Because if you're like me, I feel like it takes a second to understand how to get a robot to do things. I'm too polite. <laughs> I would read that. I would read that because, uh, yeah. Again, and maybe we should just have a whole show on this. I asked it how the equity podcast has evolved over the years. And that was pretty fascinating as well. So anyway, this was a lot of fun. And I want to read this. I want to learn how to better prompt. Yeah. I just want to say Robot Picasso sounds like a really great post-ska noise band. <laughs> it does, honestly. <laughs> if you're into freakish subgenres. <laughs> we have to go away now, but we do have a couple of things before we do. One is people have been leaving us reviews. Thank you so Yay! much. Shall we read out some of these names of folks that have been so so sweet and kind to us? 100%. Thank you guys for leaving us five stars. I'll, I'll take the first half. Uh, Palmaceous, 81. AJ Campbell, 27. Srivare, Manuel, 1234-2023. And Ed Zitron, thank you 
all so, so much. This is so kind. And it really warmed all of our hearts today. Also, Ian Simpson, Haya, uh, Gabrielle Cohen, and Erica Wenger. We appreciate it. It makes us look cool, I think, in the Apple Podcasts ranky algorithm thingy. Um, so we appreciate that. And don't forget, you can use the code equity to save money on TechCrunch Plus and tickets to early stage, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. We'll see you there. And equity is back on Monday. We appreciate you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporters, Natasha Mascarenas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickabet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.